Good morning. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Anna. You guys can grab a seat, and good morning. Uh, it is good to be with you. Just got very dark up here. It feels counterproductive. There we go. You guys can get the shine off my forehead out there now. There it is. All right, good morning. My name is Ian. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I have the uh, privilege of being one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and I am uh, very excited this morning to uh, start what I think is going to be a pretty significant sermon series for us this fall. Uh, we're going to be walking through the book of Isaiah. Uh, and this is about as excited as I've ever been for a sermon series, so you can do what you want with that. When we read uh, through Isaiah and CBR this past year, I had kind of a personal uh, revival in the book of Isaiah in my own just reading, and so I'm excited for that to hopefully uh, overflow in the midst of our congregation. But if I could boil down my excitement and give you kind of one big vision for this series, let me try to attempt to do that this morning. It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he is so right. Our thoughts about God animate and enliven all of life for us. They will either draw us toward the Lord and his holiness and his glory, or they may cause us to be pushed away in confusion or fear or anger. You see, when we talk about God, whatever pops into your head is supremely important, but we all have a problem here. And here's our problem. As I've heard Ray Ortland say, the problem is that our thoughts about God tend to be like a child trying to sketch a Rembrandt with a crayon. You ever felt that way before? I bet if you've really ever tried to read the prophets, if you've ever really tried to sit down and read Isaiah, and Lord knows Ezekiel, where we're at right now in CBR, right? Can we all admit Ezekiel is wild, right? If you ask me what's going on in Ezekiel, I barely know, okay? Go check out the commentaries. It'll be good for you. But if you've ever read these prophetic books, 
it just feels like we struggle to grasp this big vision of God that they so often paint for us. And I think the other issue is that we like to think of God as an imminent being, don't we? And by that, I mean he is near to us and close to us. And there's good reasons for that. Of course, central to the good news of the gospel is the coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh to be near to us. And he's promised to give us the continuing ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So yes, indeed, God is imminent. He is near. But sometimes I think we need to take some seasons and step back and see God in his greatness. See him in his bigness, so to speak. Really just sit back and be in awe of his grandeur and his majesty and his holiness. Because, brothers and sisters, that is also who God is, isn't he? I mean, God is the transcendent, holy, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent creator and sustainer of the entire universe. When's the last time you just sat down and thought about that? And you were in awe of that. You see, I think we need more of those thoughts when we think about God. Do those thoughts pop into your head when you mention God? See, I think Isaiah forces us to deal with this week after week and chapter after chapter. He will certainly remind us that God is near to us, but we will, in this series, regularly be confronted with passages that force us to expand our view of God and to remind us what is really real in the midst of the chaos of this world and the chaos of our own lives. I'm not sure about you, but God is too often just too small in my estimation of him. See, when life gets hard or circumstances don't go my way, God tends to feel small while all the other things in my life and quite frankly myself feel big. And Isaiah is going to pull back the curtain and say, listen, there is something bigger and better and more glorious out there than you can even imagine when we talk about God. You see, that's why I want us to step into this challenging book. You see, I believe this book is worth our attention and that God has an important word for us because we have a God who is worthy of our worship. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. And this book tells us the truth about God, whether we recognize him as that or whether we want to embrace him as that. And so for our series, in case you're nervous, we are not going to cover all 66 chapters of Isaiah. That would take the next couple years. I think that'd be fun, but it probably isn't wise for us, okay? So what we're going to be doing is we're primarily going to be focused on chapters 40 through 66, which is the second half of the book of Isaiah. But before we get to chapter 40, which begins with the people of Israel in exile, we are going to set up the book over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to look at some of these chapters from the early portions of Isaiah. And these chapters, I'm just going to warn you right now, they're full of judgment. I mean, we just read seven verses. We're going to look at all 30 in chapter 5. It's not a happy chapter, okay? But sometimes, to get to the good news of the gospel, not sometimes, every time, to get to the good news of the gospel, we have to be confronted with the bad news about ourselves. Because when we realize that, the grace of the gospel becomes all the more sweet, okay? And so we're going to step into the challenge this week as we walk through the beginning sections of Isaiah. So before I jump in, that was a lot, so let me pray. And then we're going to walk through Isaiah chapter 5. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we're grateful to gather here this morning. Uh, I'm not sure what brought each and every person that is here in this room to this place. But Lord, I know they're not here by accident. 
God, you are a sovereign God who is working out all the details of our lives. And so I pray this morning that you would meet each and every person here in this room right where they are at with your grace. God, as we open up the book of Isaiah, may you communicate the truths about yourself to us in a fresh and new way. Holy Spirit, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Not hearts that are dull, but hearts that are enlivened with a fresh vision of who you are. And in all of this, may it lead to a greater worship of Jesus in our midst. We pray that in his name. Amen. All right, as we walk through Isaiah 5, here's kind of our main idea this morning, and then we will jump in. We rightly worship the exalted Lord by receiving his grace with the fruit of repentance and faith. We rightly worship the exalted Lord by receiving his grace with the fruit of repentance and faith. As we walk through this chapter, we're going to look at the Lord's vineyard, the Lord's judgments, and then the Lord's exaltation. Let's begin with the Lord's vineyard, those seven verses that Anna read for us. Now, Isaiah 5 is a, I think, perfect encapsulation of what's going on in the first few chapters of Isaiah. It is a message of warning and a message of judgment for God's chosen people. As we're going to see in great detail today, they have rebelled and rejected him as the rightful owner and king and lord over their lives. And so this chapter begins with a parable, a story, much like the parables of Jesus. Now, a parable is a powerful device because stories so often draw us in, and then before we know it, the punchline hits us, and we didn't even realize it was coming. That's exactly what the Lord is trying to do for the people of Israel. So let's look at these first few verses again. Look back at verse 1. The Lord through Isaiah says, Let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Now this little parable is pitched as a love song, so to speak. It's a song of personal devotion and affection from an owner towards this field that one day ought to become a vineyard. So the owner acquires this field on a very fertile hill where growth would be guaranteed. He goes then about the hard work of preparing the ground. He digs up the soil. He removes and clears out the rocks. He plants not just any vines, but the choicest of vines. He puts a watchtower up in the midst of it where he could both live and protect his vineyard from enemies or from animals who might try to destroy the crop. He carves out a wine vat to store the future wine. The owner does all the work required to plant this vineyard in order to yield a crop. And this, by the way, would have taken years of hard work and attention and detail. You see, for those who were listening to this parable in Judea, grapes were their choicest of crops. They knew how vineyards worked. This would have been at least a three-year process. All that work is complete. The owner sits back and looks out with patient expectation for all of his hard work to yield grapes. But rather than yielding grapes, at the end of verse 3, it says he looked for it to yield grapes, but instead it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes in the Hebrew, it literally means stink fruit. He did all the work 
to get the choicest of grapes, to make the finest of wine. And after all of that, years and years of work, all he has left is stink fruit. They were rotten, and they smelled, and it was completely useless. Now, the hearers of the parable, they would have been outraged. They would have been angry at those grapes. How dare those grapes be stink fruit? I mean, look at the fertile ground. Look at all the work that has been done. And so as the story goes on, you could hear maybe yourself even getting sucked into the narrative. The people are listening, and the owner now takes the only obvious course of action. Look at verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? He's saying, listen, you've heard the story. Judge, did I do anything wrong as the owner? Was there anything more that I could have done? Well, of course not. He had poured not just time and energy and work into this, but his very heart. Remember, it's a love ballad. His affections were toward this field. He did not skip any steps. It was a total work, judge between him and his field. So therefore, he does the only logical thing. He allows it to be destroyed. Verse 5, now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. He destroys the field. The hedge of protection is gone. The walls of defense broken down and trampled. It will be a wasteland where thorns and briars grow up, which I think is a not-so-subtle hint to Genesis 3. When sin enters the world, now work becomes littered with thorns. He curses the clouds themselves. Don't even let it rain upon this field. See, all sources of protection and nutrients are cut off. And anyone listening to the story would say, yeah, what more could he have done? It produced stink fruit. Let it be destroyed. And then comes the chilling conclusion, maybe the punch in the mouth that they were not expecting in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, the parable is clear. The Lord is the owner. The vineyard is Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. His chosen people whom he loved and gave special care and attention to. He planted them. He chose them. He did all the work, and he expected a flourishing vineyard. He expected a flourishing people who, like him, would be marked by justice and righteousness, but instead, what did he find? Stink fruit. Where there should have been a commitment to a just society that honored all people, he found bloodshed and murder. Where there should have been righteousness, right living and conduct between citizens, there was an outcry, literally screams of anguish from those who are being oppressed. The people did not yield grapes. They yielded stinky fruit. There's a play on words here we can't appreciate in your English. The, the Bible might, your Bible might have a little footnote that tells you this, but the word for justice, what the Lord expected, and bloodshed, 
sound almost identical in the Hebrew, as do the words for righteousness and outcry. One commentator tried to make an English equivalent. He said, did God find right? Nothing but riot. Did he find decency? No, only despair. The idea is that though things might seem to be okay on the outside, not, they're not what they appear to be. Things might look nice and fine for people looking in, but when harvest time came, it turns out that it is rotten to its core. That is what is going on in God's people. And the parable is clear. Is God at fault there? No. As one commentator again rightly summarized, what can now be done for the people of God when a total work of grace has been lavished upon them and yet they remain as if grace had never touched them? That's the haunting conclusion to the parable. So let's step back. What's the big picture here? Well, I think this parable is a warning to all of us, to any who might say they follow God and follow Jesus, about receiving God's grace in vain. This is a warning about receiving God's grace in vain. That's a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. See, there's always been a danger in being a recipient of God's grace and his kindness and his affection and his total work only to use and abuse it toward an end rather than what God expects. This is always a temptation before us just as it was a temptation before Israel. And they had so settled into this lifestyle that they didn't even realize the magnitude of their problem. They lived as if they had no owner and no one that they were accountable to. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to remind you, and I think Isaiah is reminding us, we do belong to another. We do have an owner that we are responsible to. We have a creator and a sustainer who has done a total work of grace toward us. And the sin of Israel and Judah is they lived as if this just was not true. So how about for us? To be more pointed, I don't think the choice of a vineyard is an accident. What does the fruit of our lives reveal about our relationship with the Lord? This theme of fruitfulness runs through the whole scriptures, doesn't it? What does the fruit of our lives reveal about our relationship with the Lord? Is there not just a receiving of that initial grace of, yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? I'm on team Jesus. I've signed up for that. But have you seen a transformation take place where grace has not just initially been received, but it's gotten down deep into you? It's impacted every part of your being. Or is it possible you've received God's grace in vain? This is the warning of Romans chapter 2. Paul looks to his fellow Israelites and he says, Or do you presume, that's the right word here, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In the parable of the vineyard, God's kindness led to rejection. In the gospel, the invitation before us that we will come back to week after week is that God's kindness is an invitation to repentance. 
Now, the bad news is not over yet. You see, the Lord takes that parable, and then now he steps into the courtroom, and he begins to indict his people with specific sins, specific ways that they have not been receptive to God's grace, but resistant to it. And as we look at these six woes, as we look at the Lord's judgment over six woes, we ought to consider where this might impact our lives as well. You see, as he acts as this lawyer, he lists woe to you, woe to you over and over again. A woe is a language of lament, sadness, and judgment all mixed together. Maybe you remember that Jesus used this same phrase in his judgment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. There he gives seven woes. Those are quite possibly right after the literary pattern of Isaiah right here. So let's quickly walk through these six woes, beginning in verse 8. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. The first woe has to do with the aggressive greed of Israel. See, he's describing a system here where the rich and the affluent were becoming more rich and more affluent, and the poor were becoming more poor and more destitute. And they were not gaining their riches and their affluence by righteous means. They were literally squeezing the poor out of the land in an unjust way. The rich were using the system to their advantage, acquiring house after house, field after field, until all of their neighbors were forced out. And this was sinful. They were preying on the poor and the oppressed. And the whole problem with this activity, by the way, is that the land that they were doing this on, it didn't ultimately belong to them. It was a gift from the Lord himself. They were living on the Lord's land and propagating this level of injustice. As an Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke says, the righteous or the just are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community, but the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. This is the height of injustice. And it sounds an awful lot like how C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, describes hell which is really, really big mansions with a few people with no neighbors. Aggressive greed is the first woe. The second woe is sinful excess and self-indulgence. Look at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine, flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hand. He's describing a people who live for drunkenness, who live for excess and self-indulgence. Wine is what gets them out of bed and what keeps them out of bed. They're inflamed not with the Holy Spirit or the things of God, but by alcohol. And because their attention is there, they simply do not regard the things of the Lord. They have disregarded his covenant with his people, his work of blessing and grace and redemption. They are simply numb to it all. They do not see the works of his hand. Woe number three, skip down to verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, 
who say, let him be quick, speaking to the Lord. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come so that we may know it. This is a woe about self-deception and mockery. The picture here is the people of Israel are holding fast to what is destructive. It's a picture of bondage, unbreakable bondage. Imagine not horses, but people harnessed to a heavy cart pulling it along. That's the picture that Isaiah is saying the people are stuck in their sin, but they've chosen to do this themselves. They are so deceived. They are bound by cords of falsehood. It's a startling image, but this is the nature of sin. It will be a slave master. It will demand more and more. Its cords will be tight, and you are pulling it into eternity. And then in this bondage, they turn and they mock the Lord. They taunt him. They say, God, we don't really see you working, so you better work so we can appreciate you. They challenge him, show yourself, come quickly. You're not anywhere around, which is the height of blasphemy. Woe to those who are self-deceived and mock the Lord. Woe number four, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is a woe for those who rationalize and try to redefine sin. Wrong becomes right, sin becomes okay, and all of a sudden you have a whole society of people who have acknowledged that something that is wrong before the Lord is right before them. I don't know if you feel like that has any present modern day application, but feel free to apply it as you see fit. This is the idea of rejecting not just God's love, which they have, but also God's law. They have created their own morality that ends up propping up their sinful behavior, and a society is built on injustice. All right, two woes to go. Hang with me. Woe number five, short, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. This is the root of that previous woe. Those who are wise in their own eyes is essentially the summary of the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, how did that go for them? Not great, right? The most violent, disturbing book we have in the Bible. Those who rejected the Lord and who are wise in their own eyes insist on setting themselves up as king, themselves up as ultimate authority. And the problem is this is happening. Don't forget, we're talking about Israel. We're talking about God's covenant people. We're not talking about the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. These are people who have the law of God. They have been specially chosen by him. The affections of the Lord have been set upon them, and they have rejected him. They are wise in their own eyes. They have a blind arrogance. And then lastly, woe number six, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights final woe is one of simply corruption and injustice. The Lord says, listen, you are heroes and champions. Those are military terms of honor, but they're heroes and champions in wickedness and evil. They excel at what does not matter and neglect what does matter before the Lord. 
Think back to those woes against the Pharisees that Jesus gives in Matthew 23. What does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are experts at the law. You tithe all the way down to your spice rack, but you have neglected the weightier things of the law. Justice, mercy, righteousness. You have excelled at what does not matter. And as they excelled at those corrupt activities, there's a connection between their sin and the breakdown of justice. They accepted bribes from the guilty to keep the innocent oppressed. If you're following along, you'll notice that these woes are bookended by issues of justice. Issues of justice. How we treat others is a significant indicator of the health of our relationship with the Lord. The Lord is saying, no, no, don't keep bringing me sacrifices. Look at how you're treating one another. Look at the injustice that you're tolerating in your midst. Woe to that. This is not a pretty picture. Like I said, this is not a happy passage. Glad you're here this morning. Let me use these woes for a minute to set the context a bit more so we can continue to hear with right ears here, okay? When we talk about the time of Isaiah, these early chapters are set in the divided kingdom. We have northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. And then we have the southern kingdom, which is referred to often as Judah, where Judea and Jerusalem were. The northern kingdom was about to get wiped out by the new superpower of the day, the Assyrians. They were on the brink of total destruction. Their capital of Samaria was about to be completely overtaken. This was going to be the end of the northern tribes. But Judah in the south is looking up to their brothers and sisters up there in the north, and they're not facing the same conflict yet. In fact, they seemingly are flourishing. They have great economic success. Things seem to be going just fine. They were living in a pretty affluent society. But they assumed that their affluence and their economic gain and their relative peace equated to faithfulness before the Lord, when in reality, it all left them blind to him, which is precisely why the Lord is trying to wake them up. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, he is telling them of the hypocrisy of their worship. God says that their animal sacrifices are just in vain, that he hates their festivals. He is weary of them showing up to the temple. He despises their attempts to come and, quote, worship him while they are acting in complete pride and even downright evil. He says in Isaiah 1, 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. He is begging them, he is telling them, this is what I expect of you, but over and over again, rejection, turning away. And so because of that, just like all sin has consequences, there are consequences for the people of Israel. I'm not going to read all these verses for time's sake, but the three consequences are as follows. The first is exile. Chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah are setting up a warning that exile is coming. And not just for those northern tribes that are about to be defeated, but for you, Judah. Exile is coming. Those who indulge in excess will go hungry. Those who had insatiable appetites and desire for earthly things will be swallowed up by Sheol, by death. The only person satisfied will be death itself. They will go to exile. 
And secondly, in that exile, a great destruction is coming in verses 24 and 25. The Lord says, you're going to be like dry grass that meets the fire. You know how a wildfire spreads? Dry grass, dry things. It becomes stubble. It becomes just simply more fuel on the fire of judgment. And the summary of this comes in verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Because of that, they've taunted the Lord, and he will indeed show himself to be who he says he will be. And then lastly, they will face a military defeat. I want to read these verses. They're pretty strong. Verse 26 and following. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all of their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like the lion. Like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The Lord here is sovereign, not just over the people of Israel, but over every nation of the earth. See, the enemies and the armies of the day, they seem pretty powerful. They seem pretty out there in control. But the Lord here paints a picture that he whistles, and like a dog, the nations come. Don't be confused who's in control. The Lord sets up his banner, and Assyria comes running. And these, this defeat it's going to be pretty awful. I mean, it says this enemy will not tire or sleep. They will come with powerful weapons. They will come quickly and speedily. It will be like a lion catching its prey. And at the end of all of that, what is left but distress and darkness? If you looked to the land for some kind of hope, no hope would be left. That is the righteous judgment of the Lord on a people who have rejected and disregarded him. So, take a deep breath. We got through the judgment piece. That was a lot. That was most of my sermon. What do we do with that? What's the word that we need to hear from Isaiah? What's the better way than the people of Israel? There's a little phrase right smack dab in the middle of this passage I want us to go back to. It's in verses 15 through 17. Let's look there at the Lord's exaltation. He says, man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich." There's another play on words here. It says, all those who are proud and haughty, literally high, those who view themselves as high, will be brought low, while the Lord of hosts reigns exalted, literally high. 
This is an expression of God's holiness seen through his justice and his righteousness. God, in his justice, will bring to nothing those who view themselves as the highest. Because he is the highest. He is exalted. He is the holy, just, and righteous one. The people might disregard and ignore him, but he will not stand back and allow that to continue unchecked. There is only one who is truly exalted. There is only one who is in the position of the highest. And here's the reality for you and I today. We can either acknowledge that in humility or we can push back against it in pride. Those are the two responses. The Lord reigns exalted. He is high and lifted up. Next week, we're going to look at Isaiah 6. It is the picture of the Lord exalted. Isaiah doesn't even know how to describe what he sees in the throne room. It's a powerful passage. But only the Lord is that. And so when you're confronted with that vision, will we push back in pride or will we see in humility, ah, he is on the throne. I am not. He is in control. I do not need to grasp for control. Are these two verses, 15 and 16 right there, is this the posture of your soul? Is the Lord exalted in your life? Is he highest in your worship, in your affection, in your priorities? Or have you placed something else there? Or have you placed yourself there? Israel and Judah resisted this. But brothers and sisters, we do not have to. We do not have to. We have more of the story. Here's the reality. None of us in this room receives God's grace with a whole heart. None of us in this room. And here's the beautiful thing. The Lord knows that. The Lord knows that. And remember Romans 2. It is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And repentance is not a stink fruit. Repentance is the fruit of a life of the Lord being exalted and us being humbled. It is the fruit of a life of those who rightly esteem the Lord as the highest and us as the undeserving yet recipients of his affection, kindness, and ownership. It's interesting when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist is paving the way for him, people start quoting Isaiah all over the place. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, for example, Luke chapter 3, it says that John the Baptist went into the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. A great leveling is coming. How do we see the salvation of our God? Well, then he goes and he says to the crowds, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. How do we do that? Well, we receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ, not in vain, but in faith. The final answer to all of our failures and our pride and our sin is actually met with more kindness from the Lord. 
Yes, God, as he reigns in holiness and justice and righteousness, will rightly judge sin. But Jesus comes, and what does he do? He bears the cost of the consequences of our sin on the cross. All of those woes that we just said were not pronounced on you and I, but were pronounced on Jesus. And as the passage ends in darkness, so too does Jesus on the cross. Darkness descends on the land. Jesus is the one who, because of his death in our place, and his resurrection three days later, he strips the power and stranglehold that sin has on our lives. It is him who comes. And what does he say in John 15? I am the true vine. Do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to bear fruits with keeping with repentance? Then what do we do? We abide in the true vine. We humble ourselves. We exalt the Lord. And when we do that, we are not resistant to God's grace but we are receptive to it. Verse 17 ends with a word of hope. Every time in Isaiah when things get dark, there's always a promise of a remnant that is to come. And the remnant in verse 17 is the lambs. After all of this destruction, after the Lord shows himself to be exalted, there will be a remnant of lambs who will be cared for. They will graze over the fields. They will have a great shepherd who provides for all of their needs. But these lambs acknowledge God as the owner and his Lord and that his law and his love draws us to worship. It draws us to faith and repentance. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard word of judgment, but in our conviction of sin, in our guiltiness before the Lord, run to the true vine. If you want to be fruitful, if we want to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, we run in faith to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Let us not presume on the riches of his kindness, but in his kindness may we be drawn to repentance. Let's do that together, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we know this is a hard word and one that sometimes is difficult for us to hear, uh, but we know that as we mine the depths of your word for us, that it's all profitable and it is conforming us to the image of Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts. You would take dead things and you would bring them to life. You would take resistant, cold hearts and you would cause them to be receptive to your grace and your kindness. God, may we see that all of these woes, the depth of the depravity of sin in our own lives and the lives of our world, Lord, that it ultimately led to a cross. And as we behold Jesus on the cross, may we be grateful. May we worship with gratitude, and may, as we receive that grace, may it transform our whole lives. May we not live in hypocrisy. May we not bring vain worship, but draw us to repentance, draw us to the cross, and Holy Spirit, allow us to live empowered because of the good news of the resurrection. Stir that up within us, we pray in Jesus' name.